Good morning, witches. This is the Witch Daily Show, coming to you from New Orleans, with host Tanya Brown. Our episodes span about 20 minutes long to give you just a little pop of magic. So, tune in, take a deep breath, and enjoy. Good morning. It is May, still May, 29th, 2023. It is Monday. I am Tanya, and this is the Witch Daily Show. Today's episode is brought to you by The Magic of Trees by Jennifer Marie Baumgartner. So let's get your day going with a little magic. Our quote of the day is, The only real battle in life is between hanging on and letting go by Shannon Alder. So what are we uh, drinking today? We are drinking a dark fae from Sip a Spell. This is a traditional uh, yerba mate tea with green rooibos, cinnamon, ginger, cardamom, orange, lemongrass, and a seed mango pieces. Natural spicy cinnamon flavor, almond, um pineapple pieces, and papaya flavor. So we're talking this week about mango, which I'm going to be honest with you. I think in my whole life, I've only ever managed to like buy a mango and eat it once. I have, I keep trying to eat mangoes and I don't know what I'm doing wrong. (laughs) I clearly don't know enough about them to like figure out how to buy one from the store and consume it. And I don't know what the problem is. Um, but I've definitely have spent way too much money on mangoes on sale at Whole Foods only to not eat them. So who knows? Maybe by the end of the week, I'll have figured it out, but let's see where we go. So first, we're going to talk about the history of mangoes. This comes to us from the mangofactory.com. Great name. So mangoes originated in Southeast Asia and India, where references to the fruit are documented in Hindu writings dating back to 4000 B.C., Uh, Buddhist monks cultivated the fruit, and in fact, the mango is considered to be a sacred fruit in the region because it is said that Buddha himself meditated under a mango tree. So the mango belongs to the same family as the cashew and pistachio nut. Both great nuts. Mango seeds traveled with humans from Asia to Middle East, East Africa, South America, beginning around 400 and 300 A.D., Mangoes sold in the U.S. are grown near the equator in countries like Mexico, Ecuador, Peru, Brazil, Guatemala, and Haiti. So mangoes have been grown in the U.S. for a little more than a century, but commercial large-scale productions uh, are limited. So because mangoes need a tropical climate to flourish, only Florida, California, Hawaii, and Puerto Rico grow mangoes. The United States Territory, uh, Territory of Puerto Rico have been producing mangoes commercially for the last 30 years. Uh, so we can kind of see, you know, I've noticed a lot of the stuff in this tea, like the cardamom and, uh, what we talked about last week, aniseed are, are considered really some of the most ancient, most giving of the earth. Like if that is truly what I feel like I've learned, like dark fay really is, it really lives up to its name. It really is of the elements of the earth. And I think that's so cool and so fascinating. So um, I'm trying to see if there's any more lore. But I think I like the lore that uh, Buddha 
meditated under a mango tree. I think that's really cute. All right, witches. Moving on to some headlines. This is from the Mary Sue. And when I first saw this headline, I was like, okay, is this just trying to sell a book? Because very often if you see like uh, here are 13 books to get you started in witchcraft, which is the headline. It's usually just trying to sell one of the books. Uh, it's like, usually it's a sponsored or ad. Um, but I was like, you know what, let me take a look and see what they're promoting and see kind of what I think, you know, as someone who has been in the witch world since like the nineties, I'm curious to see kind of what they're promoting and see like my thoughts on it. So let's kind of dig in. First one, Hard Hitter, Drawing Down the Moon by Margot Adler. I very much recommend this book. It is dense. So don't go into it thinking it's going to be like a jolly light read. It is history. It is uh, uh, um, anthropology. It is psychology. It is sociology. It's very well written. Uh, Margot Adler is... So Margot Adler was one of the uh, people who really took witchcraft seriously, uh, and she was a contributor to NPR, is very well respected, and I highly, highly recommend this book. If you don't have it, if you haven't read it, please consider. The next one, another classic, The Complete Book of Incense, Oils, and Brews by Scott Cunningham. I own a copy of this. I believe every witch should. Scott Cunningham, it was really one of the uh, hard hitters. I think I already said that for Marco Adler. I, I can't think of another word, but really one of the, m one of the important authors that have contributed to the witch community. I recommend anything by Scott Cunningham. Okay. Next we have God's Goddesses of Ireland, a guide to Irish deities by Morgan Daimler. Also, I really like Morgan Daimler. I think Morgan is very qualified and like a leading voice, especially when it comes to Celtic deities and of that nature. So, uh, yeah, I think that's a good a good suggestion. Then we have Orisha's Goddesses and Voodoo Queens by Lilith Dorsey. I really like Lilith. Uh, again, I think Lilith really knows what she's talking about. We've read quite a few articles uh, from Lilith on this. The next one is Serpent Songs, an Anthology of Traditional Crafts. Uh, this seems like an more like an academic. Oh, it's a collection of essays by witches and folk magicians all over Europe and uh, North America. I'm, un I'm uninformed about this, but I like that it's a collection. Traditional Witchcraft by Gemma Gary. I'm also, I'm, I'm, I'm unfamiliar with this one. Apocalyptic Witchcraft by Peter Gray. I'm also unfamiliar. Inner Witch, A Modern Guide to the Ancient Craft by uh, Gabriella Hirschstick. I think I've heard of Gabriella. Um, and I actually, actually, I think we, we've talked about this book before. But again, I'm unfamiliar, so I can't comment. Let's see. Everyday Magic by Dorothy Morrison. I Yes, I will say Everyday Magic is, again, another one. If you're feeling maybe stuck or uninspired or motivated in your craft, I think that book can be really helpful. What else do we have? Oh, and then we have The Spiral Dance by Starhawk. Yes, that is another classic. That is one that... If you ever, like, I feel like it's almost, uh, it's almost cliche, but 
Um, I feel like every young witch is gifted that book by an older witch. It is very nostalgic. And I do, I know the ritual I do for home cleaning comes from that book. And that book has a special place in my heart because it was gifted to me from an older witch I knew in my twenties who it had been gifted to her from, you know, another witch. And so I, yeah, I really, I really agree. Good list. Good list. There were books I weren't familiar with, but that doesn't mean they're not good. It just means I'm unfamiliar with them. But I think that's a really solid list. All right, witches, I'm going to throw this over to our moon correspondent. And after this break, we will talk more. Hello to all of my astro friends. This is Serendipity, the Chicago astrologer, coming at you with your daily moon mantra for Monday, May 29th. The waxing gibbous moon moves from the Excel spreadsheets of Virgo to the diplomatic discussions of Libra today. Here, the moon opposes Neptune and trines Pluto. We're trying to move forward in our research today, working to get down to the bottom of something specific. But every time we feel as if we're getting closer to the truth, it dances out of our grasp or melts into thin air. Neptune is a bit of a trickster, and it's determined to stand between us and what we're trying to achieve today. If you find that you're distracted in your study, bring your focus back around to the question that started you on this path in the first place. Remembering the core of what you're doing and why you're doing it will be sure to put you back on track. Your daily moon mantra is, starve your distractions and feed your focus. This has been your daily moon mantra with Serendipity, the Chicago astrologer, signing off and reminding you that you are in charge of your own destiny. The Magic of Trees is not just a book on tree magic. It is about drawing on the strength of forests and tree energy to better connect with ourselves, other people, and the world around us. Each chapter reinforces meditations, spells, and rituals that will reconnect humanity with its roots at every stage of life. These practices take a hands-on approach to life and spiritual work. They lead to individual self-awareness and fulfillment through healthy natural practices. Plus, this text has the added benefit of fine-tuning spiritual tree connections, which never stop growing. Find the magic of trees wherever books are sold. All right. So I'm going to tell you, I've been having so much fun. After we talked about the nuns of Loran, um, oh, I rolled my L's there. Whoops. The nuns of Ladan. I don't know. Um, I really enjoyed digging into these like historical occult things and I've been toying with the idea and like, let me know what you think, but I kind of want to do a separate podcast about like occult history and stories. Like, I don't know. What are your thoughts? Is that interesting? Um, I'm, I don't know. I'm, Maybe I, I really had so much fun. And so I wanted to do that again today. And I wanted to talk about the Cottingley Fairies, which if you haven't heard was a massive hoax. And I really want to share with you like what it was about. So, um, I am pulling my information from Wikipedia, uh, which I would say when Wikipedia first came out, it wasn't considered a good source, but I have a friend who's like literally a part of a club that like, monitors wikipedia it's very well monitored like i would say it's 
a good reference. So the Cottingly Witches. So this was a hoax where um, basically the Cottingly fairies appear in a series of five photographs taken by Elsie Wright and Francis Griffiths, which were two young cousins who lived in Cottingly near Bradford in England. In 1970, when the first two photographs were taken, Elsie was 16 years old and Francis was nine. So the pictures came to attention of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who used them to illustrate an article on fairies he had been commissioned to write for the Christmas edition of the Strand magazine. So Doyle, as a spiritualist and enthused and like was just an enthusiast, like, was psyched about these photographs and interpreted them as clear and visible evidence of psychic phenomena. So, I will post a picture of the photographs on Facebook, but essentially, it, it's a photograph of a little child with the with fairies dancing around her. So, these fairies became known as the Cottingley Fairies, and interest in them kind of declined after 1921. Um, both girls married and lived abroad for a time after they grew up, and yet the photographs continued to hold public imagination. In 1966, a reporter from the Daily Express newspaper traced Elsie, who had by then returned to the UK. Elsie left open the possibility that she believed she had photographed her thoughts, and the media once again became interested in the story. So it's not that they're saying that, like, they were literally sitting with fairies and it was photographed. They're kind of claiming that Elsie was sitting there thinking about fairies and the photography happened to capture her thoughts. So in the early 1980s, Elsie and Francis admitted that the photos were faked. So using cardboard cutouts of fairies copied from a popular children's book of the time, but Francis maintained that the fifth and final photograph was genuine. As of 2019, the photographs and the cameras used are in the collections of the Natural Science and uh, Media Museum in Bradford, England. So let's talk about these photographs just a bit. So Francis and her mother newly arrived to the UK from South Africa and were staying with Francis's aunt in Cotting, uh, Cottingley. So Elsie's father, Arthur, was an amateur photographer and had set up his own darkroom. So the picture on the photographic plate he developed showed Francis behind a bush in the foreground of which four fairies appeared to be dancing. Knowing his daughter's artistic ability and that she had spent time working in a photographer's studio, he dismissed the figures as cardboard cutouts. Two months later, the girls borrowed his camera again, and this time returned with a photograph of Elsie sitting on a lawn, holding her hand out to a 30-inch, um, 30-inch, oh my gosh, 30-centimeter gnome. Exasperated by what he believed to be nothing but a prank and convinced that the girls must have just tampered with his camera, he refused to let them use it again. Because he's like, you're toying around. This is expensive stuff. It's like... I don't know, the old times. We can't just afford new cameras every time you you know you girls want to play with the camera. So he was like, You're you're messing around too much. So by the end of 1918, Francis sent a letter to uh Johanna Parvin, a friend in uh South Africa where Francis had lived, 
with enclosing the photograph of herself with the fairies. And on the back, she wrote, it is funny. I never used to see them in Africa. It must be too hot for them there. So clearly like a joke. <laughs> so the photographs became public mid-1919 after Elisa's mother attended a meeting of um, the Theosophical Society in Bradford. The lecture that evening was on fairy life, and at the end of the meeting, Polly Wright showed the two photographs taken by her daughter and niece, and it just got more attention, especially from the leading member of the society, Edward Gardner. One of the central beliefs of theosophy, uh, theosophy is that humanity is undergoing a cycle of evolution towards increasing perfection. And Gardner recognized the potential significance of the photographs for that meeting, for that movement. So Gardner sent the prints along with the original glass plate negatives to Harold Snyling, a photograph expert. Snyling's opinion was that uh, the two negatives were genuine and that they weren't fake. There was no trace whatever of uh, fakeness. Uh, he did not go so far to say the photograph showed fairies. He just said that these are straightforward photographs of whatever was in front of the camera at the time. So he's like, I'm not saying they're fairies. I'm just saying they're not doctored. So author and prominent uh, spiritualist Sir Arthur Conan Doyle learned of the photographs, which we talked about before, and he contacted Gardner in June of 1920 to talk further about these photographs. So they got a second expert from Kodak, right? So several of the company's technicians examined the photographs and agreed that they showed no sign of being doctored. Uh, Kodak declined to issue a certificate of authenticity. I mean, legit. Um, but again, they're giving the same notes as that last person. So in 1920, more photographs came out. And um, Doyle was preoccupied with organizing a lecture. So when there were new pictures, he sent Gardner to, like, go meet with the family and, like, see these new pictures. And Gardner believed that the Wright family was being honest and respectful so he just did he I mean he just didn't think anything of it. So he just said that the photos were authentic. So they decided, okay, let's let's publish this. So Doyle's article in the December 1920 issue of The Strand published these photos. So Early press coverage was mixed, generally a combination of embarrassment and puzzlement. Like, well, yeah. I mean, of course, people would still react that way today. The historical novelist and poet Maurice Hewlett published a series of articles in the literacy journal, uh, John O. London's Weekly, in which he concluded, and knowing children and knowing that Sir Arthur Doyle has legs, I decide that Miss Carpenter has pulled one of them. So everyone's kind of like making fun of uh, Doyle. They're like, you believe this? And they're like publishing being like fake. Essentially, it's like if I post, if I wrote an article in which way being like, I have evidence of fairies and I post them and then someone makes a, a TikTok series being like, hello, well, really? That's essentially what was happening. But like in 1920s, 10s world. 
So public interest, like we said before, in these fairies gradually subsided after 1921. And, you know, the the girls grew up, got married, moved away. Um, but Elsie and Francis were interviewed by journalist Austin Mitchell in September of 1976 for a program broadcast on Yorkshire television. When pressed, both women agreed that a rational person doesn't see fairies. Oh, my God. That's so lawyer speak. In 1978, the magician and scientific skeptic James Randi and a team from the Committee for Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal I want to be a part of that committee, examined the photographs using a computer-enhanced process, and they concluded that the photographs were fake and that strings can be seen supporting the fairies. So in 1983, the cousins admitted to the magazine The Unexplained that the photographs had been faked. But let me tell you, what queens, like... You know, on this podcast, we support women's rights and women's wrongs, and I am impressed. If you're eight years old and you can fake, you can trick all of these adults into thinking you are like just BFFs with the Fae and like can photograph them, good for you. I mean, that's impressive. I mean, I don't know if that's okay to say, but wow. Um, let's see if there's anything else before we, oh, the 1997 films Fairy Tale, A True Story, and Photographing Fairies were inspired by these events. So if you're super into this story and just kind of want to see more about it, uh, there's definitely a, a few things you can watch. In 2017, a further two fairy photographs were presented as evidence that the girl's parents were a part of the conspiracy. And in 2019, a print of the first of the five photographs sold for about a thousand pounds wow very fascinating all right witches i thought you would like that so we are wrapping up this episode of the witch daily show i want to give a shout out to elaine elaine you splendid golden tropical fish um, Elise S. Elise, you innocent rule-breaking leprechaun. Elizabeth, you esoteric spiffy sunfish. And Elaine Gonzalez, you powerful, pretty unicorn nurse. Thank you for so much being Patreon supporters. I really appreciate it. And before we leave today, we do have a card pull. Our card today is... The Ace of Pentacles from the Buffy Tarot deck. The Ace speaks to the magical possibilities that await you, maybe even in the glory of small business ownership. You don't have to sign a lease on the magic box to harness the power of this card, but you can treat this as a prophecy for your own ventures. You are at the start of a brand new job, windfall, or partnership, and all signs point to yes. It's still up to you to manifest your desires, but with the Ace of Pentacles on your side, all systems are a go. All right, witches, that's all I've got for you today. Uh, The Swallows by Kristen Clanton came out. Oh, gosh, like reviews are coming in and they are spectacular. I am just so honored to be a part of this book and it feels so special and it's just important to me that other people see how special it is and I'm just super psyched. 
Uh, but that's it. Uh, we will talk again tomorrow. Witches, we hope you have a wonderful day full of joy and gentleness and confidence. Links for this week's episodes, our website, Patreon, along with a free daily card pull can be found at witchpod.com. One stop for everything we talk about. Now, take one more deep breath and have a great day. <laughs>